the the joke is that uh, Corona has rebranded themselves to be Ebola beer uh, because it's. Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restore It All. This is your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup. So we're finishing out the three-part series of the interview with Lindsay Schultz, MD, MPH. First two episodes, you may remember, focused primarily on the problem, right? What is coronavirus? Why is it so scary? This third episode here is going to focus primarily on hope. Oddly enough, we're going to first talk about this potential of another wave. Once things calm down, then there could potentially be another wave. We're going to cover that in the hope section because that second wave might not be as bad as the first, and she'll explain why. And then we'll talk about treatments and uh, potential vaccines and how all of that's going. So thanks for continuing to listen, and we're going to join this interview already in progress with Lindsay Schultz, MD, MPH. By the way, just as a reminder, although Persona and I do work for Druva, this is not a Druva podcast. The opinions that you hear are our own. Anything that, you know, makes, if it turns out that, you know, as the summer comes on, this ends up being seasonal and the cases drop in June and July and, you know, maybe come back in the fall, like that would be great. That would buy us more time. That would let people get out a little bit from, you know, being stuck in their, their tiny apartments. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm just not sure how much that's going to be there yet. Just following up on that. So they also talk about at some point there being a second wave, I guess, in some regions, we're also seeing that as well. What does that mean though? Because I know we're everyone's sheltering in place. Like you said, they're going bonkers, but they're trying to sort of flatten the curve and give hospitals time. What would happen with this sort of second wave? Is it like the same thing? Is it a mutation? It's not a mutation. Um, the basic thing like happening in places that are, are shutting down again that have already dealt with this once, you know, it's it's Singapore, it's Hong Kong, it's China instituting um, a ban on entrance for two weeks. It's places that have, you know, mostly dealt with it now having cases imported from the rest of the world. So whereas it started with, you know, a, a traveler visiting, you know, Wuhan, goes home to Seattle and takes the disease, takes the virus with him. Now it's someone was, you know, a, a Chinese citizen was visiting Spain or Portugal or somewhere else and is now taking that virus back home. So they're going through this process again that I think we're going to keep seeing. We're going to have this one big lockdown where everything is shut. Everyone is inside to deal with this first major wave to give us time but you're going to continue to see the, those sparks because, I mean, people are going to keep traveling. This virus isn't going to magically disappear. But the point of that that second surge is you want it to look more like what South Korea was able to do the first time around, that we have a quicker test so we can identify people that are infected. We can isolate them. We can treat them. We can very quickly find out who their contacts are, which I think is going to be way more you guys' arena than mine um, (laughs) as far as how exactly we're going to be able to balance issues of privacy and surveillance in the United States. So I think I think that's what it sort of means by that second wave of it's possible this may start exhibiting seasonal 
transmission that it may end up looking like those other coronaviruses that just cause colds and sort of just pass through the population as we start developing immunity to it. So you would almost expect, you know, something to kick up again in the fall. We don't know if it's going to taper off this summer. There's just no real way to tell because of how the spread is. So we would expect one, maybe you get a resurgence in the fall just because it's colder and less humid. And you're also going to continue to see these these pockets where it pops up and they're going to have to have quick and flexible responses to, you know, maybe we need to close the schools here for, you know, for two weeks to deal with this and then we can open them back up. And then you see another hotspot somewhere else in the country that has to respond in a similar way. And I think we're looking at that kind of response until there's a vaccine, which could be maybe a year, uh, maybe 18 months. Let's talk about that, because I read somewhere and it was on an official site. Um, so it wasn't just random internet <laughs> nonsense. It was on an official site, a government site. And I read the sentence, there are no approved vaccines for any human coronaviruses. I was a, a, a bit surprised by that because we've had some, as we talked about, the, the ones in the past. I, any thoughts on that? I mean, I I would not be able to say why specifically, you know, SARS or MERS didn't inspire a big response, but it's kind of typical um, when you're trying to look for the market to get money to do the research to ah. um, develop a vaccine that you need, um, you know, someone guaranteeing that purchase at the end. One of, I think, a pretty good example of this working well was Ebola. There was the, the big Ebola outbreak, I think in 2014. Um, and there was a very quick turnaround time and people looking at, you know, treatments and, and vaccines, and they were, were able to stand up um, trials very quickly because there were commitments from, you know, the WHO, from the Gates Foundation, from places saying, we will purchase these if mm. you make them. And they were able to deploy them for use. And there was, there's been a small smoldering outbreak in parts of the Congo for probably close to six months that I think are just about to be declared Ebola free again. But they had this vaccine ready to go this time because of that, that mechanism that was put in place back in 2014. So, you know, you, you got SARS, it killed, uh, I think in the neighborhood of 800 people. Yeah. 774 officially. But it fizzled out, you know, so someone competing for for research money, you know, maybe a coronavirus vaccine wasn't that hot. And then, you know, you get MERS again, that's breaking out mostly in, you know, the MEs for Middle East. It's carried by camels. So places that camel racing um, and owning and putting you in very close proximity with those animals or where it's happening. So, you know, is that like many other vaccines and diseases, something that an American or European pharmaceutical company is going to be interested in, in pushing research on. Yeah. So basically it sounds like that, as we would say in our business, the TAM wasn't big enough, a total addressable market. There you go. That's it. There wasn't enough scared people to make it, to viable, buy, to make it viable as a business. And so people, you know, government. so it wasn't, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm really glad to hear. <laughs> so I'm really glad to hear that's the reason not that coronaviruses are hard to make vaccines for. I don't think so. Um, there, There's never going to be guaranteed that like the specific receptors that I mentioned on this virus aren't going to mutate. So far, there's no evidence that that's happening, meaning they're going to have a good target to look for to make these vaccines. There's a bunch of different approaches already taking place. So I, I think they'll be able to stand one up pretty quickly. Um, you know, it's going to be a matter of how quickly can you go through the entire um, approval process, you know, from 
from phase one to phase three to actually be able to start distributing these and ramp up manufacture. Um, one thing I did read they are doing is as they start seeing who maybe the three or five most viable candidate vaccines are going to be, they're going to pay to have those vaccines to start to be manufactured. So when one of them makes it through the clinical trials and is shown to be effective, they have a big supply ready to go. Mm. So they're they're trying to cut time off on either end. Like usually with a vaccine, you insist on having a good animal model first. They're right. kind of saying we're, we're going to do animal modeling and phase one, the test for safety just at the same time. And they've already started signing people up for that. Yeah. I, you know, I saw a human trial. Just I think it's Seattle, right? It was in Seattle. Yeah. There was a woman that uh, and I was amazed at that. Yeah. And so, I mean, they're they're standing up the vaccine trials. They're standing up um, trials of the convalescent serum, the the blood that is taken from patients that have already had the disease and have immunity and have those antibodies to try. Um, there, there's drugs already being trialed. There's, uh, I think it's a monoclonal antibody at Mount Sinai that's out. Lindsay, mm-hmm. Hang on, uh, I want to, I, I want to cover that in, in just a minute. Basically, the hope. Uh, I want to, okay. I want to cover the hope. <laughs> I want to cover the hope. Next. You're so very okay. It's, it's very <laughs> small, but we try. So there, so there have been. I've, I've heard. I've, we, we got a whole bunch of things to talk about, right? So there's, there's been some things like I've heard, like the anti-malarial stuff. I'm just going to list them all real quick. So I've heard like the anti-malarial stuff, mm-hmm. things like that. Where what's the medical term for off? It's off label. Oh, Isn't that oh, what it oh, is? Off label use. Yeah. Off label use. So there's that. That's a category of things. Then there's these, uh, again, I don't know the medical terms for it, but this thing of uh, where they're taking blood from recovered patients and they're putting it into uh, non-recovered patients. There are serum, there is serum work being done. I'm sorry, convalescent serum. Yep, I don't know if that's, that's the same thing as what I just said. Yep. Uh, and then also uh, uh, the, the, an actual vaccine. Uh, and I don't, I think the convalescent serum, I talked to you about, that guy that was in the documentary and he said he's taking the work that was done for SARS uh, and, 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 and sort of changing it or something to, to make a, I don't know if that also qualifies as a convalescent serum. Is, is, is a convalescent serum just something you give to sick people in general? Um, they will, that that's typically the way you would say it, it starts before you've had any more precise um, study of it. They they will they're also going to be running trials of using it as a prophylactic for say a medical professional who has been exposed. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, and then and then a lot of the time, what you do with that is you'll if if it seems to be working, which a lot of the time you know it's none of this is going to be here's definitely the silver bullet. Here's definitely the thing that works. So it's it's all going to be a little hand wavy, but it definitely seems like. Convalescent serum has helped in past treatments, um, in SARS, I think in Ebola as well. So what they will do is they will then start isolating the antibodies that your your body's response to the disease in your blood from those people that have already had it. They're going to try to isolate those antibodies and see which of these is the one that is helping. And there's similar trials with that already happening with those those antibodies they tried to design. That's one way they would go about implementing the idea of making not just, oh, we're going to use this with severe patients, but also something a bit more proactive that might even be able to be given to people with a more mild or moderate form uh, of the disease. And what do you know of this this hydro hydroxychloroquine? 
Hydroxychloroquine. How'd I do? <laughs> That's pretty close. Hydroxychloroquine is an antimalarial that it, it, the malaria parasite enters into cells in a similar way to the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. So it's not unreasonable to think at a theoretical level it might help. There's some animal modeling that maybe it helps. Some small, almost case studies um, that it may be making a difference. You know, it is not to the point that you would say, you know, everyone should definitely have this. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely not a point that you would say people that are not currently infected and symp- symptomatic would have it. We do not have evidence that it can act as a prophylactic, meaning that it will prevent you from getting Hmm. this virus. They're studying it. I mean, they are studying everything, absolutely everything they can get their hands on. So like there's a study in Minnesota right now of healthcare workers who have had an exposure and then take this anti-malarial as a prophylactic. Does it help? You know, the answer is we really don't know. And the problem with this anti-malarial in particular is it does not come side effect free. It can Mm. cause arrhythmias in people, which is why you're supposed to be closely monitored when you're on it. Mm. What's an arrhythmia? Uh, It is an electrical charge in your heart that is not regulated correctly. That sounds bad. So, yeah. So they, this is not a, you know, it's not like telling someone, you know, there's, there was some thought that I don't really think there's much to it, that there was a difference between aspirin and Tylenol in how it was affecting people that were on them. You know, there's not a ton of evidence for it, but it's an easy fix. If a patient says, I heard there was something about aspirin, can I take Tylenol instead? You know, as long as they don't have liver disease, you say, sure. You know, there's that's over the counter. That's fine. That's an easy everyday choice that I don't think it has a ton of effect, but it's also probably not going to hurt you to make that switch. But with this anti-malarial, it carries risks in taking it, which is why, you know, they're using it in clinical trials of people that are already at risk. And what you definitely shouldn't do is drink fishbowl cleaner that contains this chemical this this is true there there are many versions of a of similar chemical compounds that may appear just everywhere that are not the same thing (laughs) as the chemical compound of the drug and unfortunately i think one or two people died because of that right yeah the yeah they drank fish but apparently there's a fishbowl cleaner that uses a similar compound and yeah it was it was a similar name i wouldn't even be able to tell you if it was anything similar but and and there were also reports of you know doctors prescribing this to themselves to friends to family that i understand that impulse of wanting to protect the people that you're close to but again, these may not work and they're not risk-free. If they work and we can convince a, a manufacturing company to make them cheaply and make them super available, I promise we will be screaming it from you know our single person balconies, but right. we're just not there. Right, right. The, the, the risk-free part or the not risk-free part is, is important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That, that, it, that it does things, but it also does things that are not so good. So, so we talked about that this concept of a convalescent serum, what have you heard that's happening there? Um, they are just getting the trials up and running. Um, there, there's a few different avenues that people that have had a lab-confirmed diagnosis can do um, to help out after they've recovered from their illness. And I know a number of people that have been first in line to volunteer to do this. 
There are studies using this serum, and there are also clinical trials directly applying this to severe patients, as well as those prophylactic trials with uh, with healthcare workers that they're trying to stand up to see if it has an effect. And like I said, it's it's hard to nail down, you know, really really solid data for this kind of stuff, but it it seems like something that would have a reasonable shot at making a difference. And usually doing these trials just for, since I'm not as familiar, but these trials take time to run, correct? And could you just kind of talk about what that process looks like? They do. Normally, the bigger problem of running trials is recruiting, you know, you you design your trial, you get it approved, and then you have to go about recruiting patients. And these patients are going to have to meet certain criteria. In, you know, in regular trials, you're, you're looking for very, very specific conditions to try to isolate what the effects of this particular treatment are. Um, in this case, these trials are probably going to go much, much more quickly because there are a lot of patients and people are going to be willing to try a lot of things because for a lot of those patients at the more severe end of the spectrum where we don't have anything so there's there's some trials. There's a trial for um, an antiviral that I believe was designed for Ebola that the first results should be coming out of China um, at early next month. So this is how fast it's turning around. It's remdesivir. That, that's one of the drug names that will probably make it into the popular press. It's, it's a Gilead drug that is was designed to treat Ebola and similar things. And because all of these kind of viruses rely on the same cellular machinery to make themselves work, you can try to repurpose these drugs. Mm. And this is one that they're they're thinking there's reasonably good promising early data. And um, some of the bigger trials will start showing at least midpoint results soon. Um, and the, the big deal with this is going to be figuring out how to scale up its production um, if it's shown to have an effect. But that's something that could be coming online by, you know, say early summer, um, you know, to already be treatments in place, you know, for this particular disorder, you know, whether it's it's the serum, it's um, it's this treatment, it's one of the antibodies. The fact that you're looking at something that's able to help treat these so quickly will also help us sort of come out of this ice age and be able to go about our business a little bit faster. So, I mean, other positives that we're, we're seeing already... Um, one of the big the big challenges we've had is I'm I'm sure you've just seen everywhere there's not enough testing. You know we took too long to let academic centers and and private labs stand up their own testing. And even what we have now, the turnaround time is some places are getting them back in two days, some places it's taking a week. And by that point, you've already made whatever clinical decisions that you're going to make. Um, there is a new quick test that is apparently going to be making it to patients starting this week that will give you your results within 15 minutes. Is this the Abbott one? This is. Is that the one that they approved like yesterday? Yeah. So this is, it'll be 50,000 a day, which is is not scaling to the number of tests per day that we need, but that combined with, I think we're testing maybe 60 or 70,000 people a day, maybe getting more on the right track of which we should be looking at. Another thing that it looks like it's coming online more quickly than I expected are the serological tests. Those are the tests that it's basically um, a finger prick that they can see if you have mounted an immune response to this disease, meaning you have had it and you are now immune to it. And if, you know, you can go back to work, you can do things that for the people that have not been infected yet are still too risky. 
And I know there's a company in the UK is at least says they're going to be putting these out to the public this week as well. Oh, crazy. Can that test tell that you're no longer infectious and therefore safe to return? Um, they, I think they would have to do a different test. It, this, they would pair that with, if you had recently had symptoms, they would pair that with the same, you know, the quick test that they do for like flu, which is what this quick test for coronavirus will look like to make sure that you've already passed that point. Because what those quick tests are looking for isn't your immune response, it's active virus. So you could pair those two to make sure that you're, you both have immunity and you're no longer infected. One of the things that in my head that encourages me is this idea of identifying people that those people that have been infected, but are now infection free and have the antibodies, and then they can go do things, right? They can, go, right. they can, with, with immunity, they can go and do things. Right. And I mean, and this is this is the thought where, you know, they keep saying, you know, well, how long will this first phase last? You know, I know Scott Gottlieb that I've been, you know, following obsessively the former head of the FDA, who's been very, very good and how he's analyzing this and putting things forward said, you know, the end of April, we may have an idea of how long the initial shutdown really needs to last. And again, it may not be the same in New York as it is in, you know, rural Nebraska or something. But part of what he's looking at as opposed to giving a date is, do we have, you know, these quick tests available? Are we able to test for immunity? So we really know, you know, who can go back to working in, you know, in the restaurant and, you know, in in the bars and, you know, things like that, that that would be safe for them to be out and about again, to start opening up the economy slowly like that. A very naive question. Right. So if someone has had the infection, they built up these antibodies. Can't you just like pull their blood, give it to someone else? Oh, that's right. We were supposed to talk about that. <laughs> that, that is that is essentially the idea of um, of the convalescent serum. The problem is um, we d- your your body will make a whole bunch of things in response to this this virus. So we're able to test and say, oh, you know, this thing that your body made means that you have it. We don't know if it's this particular thing we're testing is really what's helping you with your immunity or just, you know, one of the other many things that your body made while it was in the process of dealing with this. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of testing that blood serum is to figure out which of those things, which of those antibodies, which of whatever is really helping to convey that immunity and then isolate that to be able to give to people. Gotcha. So I guess the more people you're testing who have the immunity, then you can kind of look at an overlapping set and really kind of try to narrow down what is the specific antibodies that are helping, that your body produced to help fight it. Yep, absolutely. And a lot of us feel almost very creepy every time another friend will say, oh, I tested positive. I will say, I am so sorry. I hope you feel better. I hope it is a metal case. As soon as you're done, please let me know. We will take <laughs> you to the lab. <laughs> right. Because as, as more people heal, these supplies will increase. But right now, I think that's probably the um, the limiting reagent in, in a lot of these studies, like the convalescent serum, is there's just not a ton of people that have lab-confirmed tests lab confirmed recoveries to uh, be able to take in fact um you know the jeopardy connections are so so numerous um one i think she said she was the second person in the country to to be infected to recover and to donate her her blood um she's in seattle so it was to the um the new seattle study that they showed up but she said she was the second in the country to do it and she personally knew the first Wow. Um, but she was a she's a Jeopardy alumni. So yeah, because that's actually one thing that probably a lot of people don't know is if you were infected and you've recovered, you should probably go get your blood done. 
and think about donating your blood, right? Yeah. I mean, that that's the, that's the idea. So the, the, that will be one, another of the benefits of the serological tests are not, and again, those will be, um, I think the one in the UK is, so it's not the swab. I know the swabs are very unpleasant. These are the pinpricks that they draw blood from the tip of your finger. So it's a more reasonable thing to ask people to, to volunteer to do. And, you know, that way you can find out if you were, you know, asymptomatic, if you had a mild something that was probably COVID, but you're not sure, you could find out. And then you could not just be a participant in this reopening of the economy. You can also be a participant in all of these, you know, these studies, you know, that are that are getting underway for these treatments. By the way, what what does serological mean? Um, that means it straight up just means blood. Oh, okay. so as, as opposed to um, as opposed to, uh, you know, the swabbing your nose, which is where they can look for active virus, because that's one of the places it, it replicates the most. Serological tests are where you're going to find those antibodies. So that's sort of I, I sorry, I just quick and dirty. That's sort of how we separate them out. Uh, t- total random uh, memory. I did a lot of work at Amgen and at Amgen, the artwork on the walls is mm-hmm. uh, microscopic pictures of blood. Sounds about right. <laughs> quite lovely. Yeah, it was. A, it was. A, I, I was like, "What? These this artwork is really interesting." And they were like, "Yeah, that, that's blood." Yeah, I'm familiar with people that like uh, make you know scarves and paintings and everything else of some of the prettier versions of microscope pictures. Neurons are very popular. Um, I don't think coronaviruses are going to be very popular anymore, but no, it's not going to be. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the, the joke is that, uh, Corona has rebranded themselves to be Ebola beer, uh, because it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you, you haven't seen that there, the people have actually taken images and, and actually changed the look of a Corona bottle to, oh, to say funny. Ebola. I think there's 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 a lot of gallows humor flowing around right now, which you know we all we all need to get through yeah. our. Uh, we need we need day. some humor. Yep. We need some humor, uh, especially for those of us. You know, uh, it sounds like the three of us have been very blessed in that we, we you know certainly you are full of work. Uh, you know, Prasanna and I are able to relatively weather this so far. Uh, I'm very much concerned for the people that. Yeah, I just found out yesterday that my mother is basically almost unemployed. She's a, a medical transcriptionist uh-huh. and the, you would think she'd be busy, but what happened is all of the non-urgent cases just stopped. So she right. doesn't have, uh, she doesn't have any medical transcription work to do. And, and, you know, it's all the waitresses and the cabbies and the Uber drivers and, yeah. you know, all those folks. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. A lot of my friends are in the medical field. And if you're not directly involved in this, most places, New York is a different story, but most other places aren't at a point that they're, you know, calling in the the heart doctor or the like kidney doctor to come, you know, work the floors in the hospital yet. But everybody's been sent home to try to eliminate, you know, the spread. And so they're just sort of like hanging out going, I don't know what to do with myself. You know, but at mm. least if you're if you have, you know, some financial comfort built in, you know, you can weather, you know, this this month or two or maybe three that this first, you know, this economic ice age is going to be. And it's it, it's going to be tough if if the ultimate response is, you know, here's twelve hundred dollars to get you through the next little while. So, yeah, that, that it, it's it's a start. And I'm, I'm glad that it happened. And, um, uh, you know, and, and there are other some there are some other state level things that are happening right. on different states. I know, uh, you know, I live in California and I've been hearing things like 
mortgage and rent relief, things like that, where they just basically come out and say, okay, we're passing a law and you, you can't, you know, but you don't have to pay your mortgage for the next right, couple of months right. because free, nobody's freeze working. On, I know Pennsylvania has a freeze on, at least in public housing, like evictions and all of the, you know, whether it's electric or gas have voluntarily agreed to stop shutoffs for a couple of months, you know, but then you're looking at a country like say Denmark, that what it has done is just agreed to pay to the companies so they can pay out to their workers 90% of what their salary was that it's literally just putting the economy on ice, that businesses aren't closing, that everything is just sort of waiting for this to pass, you know, because it's not a normal economic downturn. It's, you know, a one of a kind, once a century deal. So you have been incredibly helpful. You've been on here longer than any other <laughs> podcast guest. We have I mean, talked your ear off and... I hope it was helpful. No, this was super I, I think helpful. It was massive. Think. Yeah. Yeah. Super helpful. I mean, it, it has created. Not too depressing. I, I have all of my poor friends. I've become like the saint of bad news. Like <laughs> everything they ask me, they're like, can I go do this? I'm like, no. They're like, can no. I visit? I'm like, no. They're like, what about this number over here? I'm like, no. <laughs> so do you have any advice for the listeners, I guess? I know you talked about hope and we talked about all the issues, but kind of what should they be doing other than like shelter in place and things like that? I mean, you know, the, the answer is, you know, Checking on the people that are close to you. You know, I've seen a lot of people, especially people that, you know, for me, like I've, I've had the internet since I was 11, you know, like this is so sort of being connected to the world this way is just second nature for me, but especially for family and in places that it's not, you know, relatives that are used to, you know, seeing a smiling face, you know, like I've seen people, you know, dropping things off at neighbor's doors, um, you know, setting up local bulletin boards, putting, you know, carefully cleaned letters in neighbor's mailboxes saying, if you need help, I'm in such and such, let me know. Um, you know, just just reaching out to people that that maybe in, you know, the way all of our lives go that that haven't been as present. Like this is almost can be a chance if you're in a privileged enough place to take it up, like a mental reset for you. And if you are in a place that you can take that to reconnect with friends, to reconnect with family, to, you know, from six feet distance to meet your neighbors for the first time. I know I've also seen places that the people are, are feeling a little lonely. You know, they'll have scheduled appointments of someone coming out on their porch at a certain time, someone else from across the street walking into the middle of the road because nobody's driving anywhere and just having a chat that way. Because I guess we don't we don't really focus on the mental health aspect of this, right, or the impact it has. Right. And, you know, so there's there's going to be a lot of long term things to deal with. But in in the short term, it's, it's going to be those connections that really help, because, you know, for a lot of people, you know, being isolated, you know, they're like I said, you know, 80, 85 percent of people that, that get this virus are going to be just fine. But there's still going to be for a lot of those people, this this mental challenge that, that dealing with this kind of isolation was. So, so knowing how to reach out and knowing how to sort of dig into those connections. Like I know for me, I've been talking to friends that I haven't seen in 15 or 20 years, <laughs> you know, setting up Zoom parties. I'm like, this is, we haven't done this since I was in college, but it was like, everybody have a land party. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. La- wow. I haven't, I hadn't <laughs> thought about land parties in a long I, time. I was in, I was Carnegie Mellon 2001. <laughs> That was my entire yeah. freshman dorm. <laughs> like, what are you all yelling about? I'm like they're playing Doom again. But when I did them, for the record, when I did them, uh, we didn't. Laptops weren't as prevalent as they are now. People brought their 
big PCs over. That's what we to, did. Yeah. Oh, did you? Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, that was a long time ago. And yeah. Zoom, Zoom meetings. By the way, my recommendation is Netflix meeting. So you there's oh, the a Netflix there's party. A, yeah. There's a Chrome, Netflix party. Yeah. There's a Chrome extension called Netflix party. First thing is you have to agree on a Netflix movie, which good luck with that. <laughs> and then you, somebody pulls that movie up and then they have the extension and they, they get a little special URL that gets sent to everybody else. And you can all watch the same movie at the same time with the ability to pause uh, so that one person pauses and everybody pauses. And there's a little window to the right where you can chat with each other. Oh, that's so cool. you can, you can watch movies with friends without being there. And zoom meetings are great. Uh, just please, for the love of God, turn your camera off if you're going to the bathroom. <laughs> I've seen a few of those around. My, my favorite thing, though, is is people sharing like what they're uh, putting as like their wallpaper up in the background for their uh, Zoom meetings. Like Carnegie Mellon offered up one. There's like the, the Scotty dog can just stand uh, directly behind you. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. All right. Well, listen, thank you yeah, so thank much. Thank you so, so, so much. The only problem is I'm going to have to turn this into two podcasts. This is um, <laughs> two, we, maybe I have three. To figure out, I have to figure out uh, how to separate that out. So, well, again, uh, thank you to the listeners uh, for sticking with this this podcast that's dedicated to backup and disaster recovery. And we haven't talked about that in four weeks. If you're still with us, thank you. And um, at some point, like the rest of the world, we'll get back to our normally scheduled stuff. Be so safe out there. Be safe out there and, uh, you know, make sure to subscribe so that you can restore it all. System isn't worth a spit. Finally, I needed your backup. You had a chance to fix it, instead, it's all jacked up. See how I'll write on Facebook about you. Don't underestimate the things that I will do. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth a spit.
that just for once it'll be completely done. Maybe one day. It'll